Hey everybody, it's Dr. Z. Welcome to the Z-Dog MD show. All right, today's guest is a specialist in something that we desperately need to talk about now more than ever, but every day this is an important conversation, which is how do we make sure we treat our patients in the ICU as the human beings who are suffering that they are? How do we manage ICU delirium? How do we get them moving? How do we make sure they don't have long-term consequences of being in a place that would trigger PTSD in anyone if we're not careful? Now, Dr. Wes Ely is a medicine and critical care specialist at Vanderbilt. He's also at Nashville VA down there, and he is a world expert in exactly this, and he joins us today. Let's just launch into it. Wes, thanks for being on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. And these topics could not be more important. COVID-centric. It's, everything's COVID, all COVID all the time. And we know these patients are suffering. They feel isolated. We're going in in spacesuits. We're not spending enough time at their bedside. And they're confused. They're getting a lot of sedation. And uh, it's a delirium factory out there. So we've got to do what we can to mitigate that and to really maximize human dignity in this process. Yeah, I love what you just said. It's a delirium factory. What we're doing is en masse trying to save people. We're overwhelmed. Our cognitive resources are taxed just trying to figure out, do we have the right PPE? How many patients are we taking care of? Making sure we go through all that. And what's left over is not enough capacity sometimes to go, you know what? What we're creating here is a ticking time bomb. They may get better. They may leave the unit, but they are going to have long-term consequences if we're not careful. And you were one of the pioneers, actually, you and others working in this space in determining Look, it may make sense to try to avoid ICU delirium and those kind of things in theory that these are human beings and we want to mitigate suffering, but you actually showed that outcomes improve when you actually care for a human being in the ICU and try to mitigate these things. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's, I always like to start with the patient's story, though. Let, let, let me tell you, I was, in, I was in Korea about a couple of months ago, right before COVID broke out. And I asked to speak to one of their survivors and uh, a woman came in, I'll just call her Miss K. Um, and I've got permission to use her story. Mm-hmm. She had been in the ICU with uh, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage for a couple of weeks. And it was a year earlier and she was still in a wheelchair, unable to walk, unable to go back to work, cognitively impaired. So she had PICS and the PICS, the, the cardinal features of PICS that she had were an acquired dementia, which we call the post ICU dementia, The NIH calls it an ADRD. It's an Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. And she had massive muscle loss, ICU-acquired weakness, and really a year later, still in a wheelchair. Anyway, I was talking about why she had gotten so much sedation. And the doctors in the room said, well, we we don't stop it every day. What if she Uh self-extubates? And a nurse from across the room, a Korean nurse, screamed out, what if she never walks again? Oh, my God. Whoa. Yeah. That puts it in perspective, right? Yeah. So we do a lot of things out of fear in the ICU. I think right now in COVID land, uh, the COVID pandemic, which is a big deal in our world, uh, all of us are concerned as healthcare professionals. And on this show, we can point no fingers. Everybody out there is doing their absolute best. And I want to acknowledge all of the amazing physicians in Seattle, Bergamo, New York, New Orleans. And we know everybody's doing their best. Uh, yet, and yet we also know there's always room for us to improve. And what we know that you asked me a moment ago is we have got data from over 400 papers, 3540 New England Journal, Lancet, JAMA papers, 
And now over 20,000 patients from the SCCM's IC Liberation Program. Bottom line, the more you comply with these concepts in the A2F bundle, the, the SCCM's IC Liberation Bundle or the ABC DES, the more you comply, the less death, shorter length of stay, less ICU bounce backs, way less delirium and coma, and I love this one, less nursing home transfers. So when we're taking care of our, of our COVID patients, we can't just focus on their hypoxemia right now. They're coming in with bad delirium. We're making it worse in the delirium factory. And we've got to be asking ourselves, what's the long-term survival going to look like for all these people? It, it, it's so important. And, you know, I talked to a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Barbara McLean, who's an APRN in Atlanta and did a talk on the show about how they're managing patients in the unit and how even at the end of life, these patients are dying alone. They're talking to their families through a biohazard bag holding a phone because we can't have them visit. And, you know, the F, the family is part of your A, B, C, D, E, F bundle that you created. Family at the bedside. This is a basic, it's not even about human dignity. It's a human right to be with those you love. And we, we are depriving them of this now out of necessity because of all these reasons. It is. I mean, another story, I think we all remember these stories. The last week, uh, two weeks ago, maybe with a COVID patient, this man was dying. It was his wish to be removed from the ventilator. Obviously, we're going to adhere to his wishes. And his son was in Atlanta and he was going to take four or five hours to get here. So the man and his friend made a decision to go with that as the visitation. She was there with him for a moment. And I'll just tell you three people's stories on the back end. So he eventually dies about eight hours later. The last time she saw him, she was waving to him through the glass, not at his bedside, not holding his hand, waving to him through the glass. She told me that she went home, cried in her closet because she asked for God's forgiveness because she wasn't fully present for him. She herself was afraid of being fully present for this man. In other words, she felt selfish. The son was sad that he had made a decision to go with the, the, the friend because he actually could have been there. But once she was chosen, she was the one. So he couldn't, he was disallowed. And the last part of the story is the next day, the resident crying said to me, I don't feel like I'm a doctor anymore. The first time I held his hand was to pronounce him dead. You know, we have to get back to the roots of why we're here. We're here to serve these people and do the absolute best we can. Now, we have to acknowledge the infectivity of these droplets, do the best we can, but we can't not go in their rooms. We have to be present with them and we have to be present with somebody who's dying and show them that dignity and acknowledge that they are mind, body, and spirit, not just a body with a disease. You know, and I mean, that's as powerful as it comes. And the truth is, look, you know this because you have experience in this space. You also know that the science and the protocols and the tubes and the wires and the technology go hand in hand with that human connection. Together, you get better outcomes than if you ignore one or the other. Without the tech and the, and the tubes and the wires, you might die, but without the humanity, you are gonna die in a different way, and the long-term outcomes are worse. And this has been kind of a life's passion of yours since you've, since you've been in critical care, because I watched some of your talks that you've given. It's inspiring, because what you found is you can actually have data that shows, well, look, if you go through this bundle, actually the sum of the bundle has 
has a bigger effect than the sum of its parts, that each part is actually evidence-based. And the problem is when we're already so cognitively burdened in the ICU, in other words, there's so many things we have to remember, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, uh, GI prophylaxis, the DVT prophylaxis. We have to remember the, our different vent weaning protocols, all these other things. We're going through these checklists. If we don't have the checklist, we're so overburdened, we will forget. So people like to ridicule bundles and order sets and things like that. But people in the know- I think, I, I mean, I think that people get frustrated if they're told what to do and it doesn't make sense to them. Right. And they think this is not, I'm not ordering a steak here. This is, this is medicine and it's an art, so let me do my art. That's all fine. I, I appreciate that. But the truth is, when you're taught as a med student how to read an EKG, you're taught rate, rhythm, axis. And you got to do that the same order every time or you're going to miss, miss something on that EKG. When you're taught to read an x-ray, your wife is a radiologist. It's patient, position, rotation, inspiration, bones, soft tissues, lines. I mean, you do it the same way every time and you don't miss stuff. Well, when you're taking care of a person in the ICU – if you don't have some safety checklist like that, we know that we dropped the ball. And in fact, even just on rounds, patient one versus patient 20, by the time you get to patient 15 to 20, you're getting beeped, buzzed, you've, you've spent too long. And now those last few patients get the short uh, end of the stick and you don't spend as much time with them. So what do you do instead? What you do is you take these landmark randomized trials, put them into a bundle. And the IHI definition of it is, yes, individually, they worked in the New England Journal Lancet JAMA. But do they work better if you put them all together as a bundle? When you're on the airplane tonight, that pilot is going to do a checklist to take off. And also, well, we're not flying much right now, but uh, yeah. if something goes really wrong, like a pandemic, they rely even more on their checklist. So my argument is that right now in the midst of COVID, not only – should we not ditch the A to Fs? We should rely even more on these protocols to keep us moored and to keep our, our, our treatment foundational and balanced. Does that make sense? Oh, a thousand percent. And, and we talk about, you know, uh, on our show, we talk about health 2.0, which is this kind of mechanized, commodified, qual the measurement industrial complex kind of runs everything. This is not what we're talking about. We need this basis, it's just like a pilot, in order to do the best care we can for the human being in that bed. And I think that that's what that's what people need to understand about ICU care. It is so complex that if you don't do things the same way every time, you will miss something. And I know this from personal experience. Now the now the question is you mentioned the A to F bundle. So A, B, C, D, E, F. It might be. Let good. me just show you. Let me just tell you what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what this looks like is, you know, and I can sympathize, by the way, right now with some nurses and some of our other audience listening in, thinking, you know what? Forget you, Ely. I'm too busy. Don't you get it? I mean, we're in New York. We've got all these patients. Yeah, I, I do. I sympathize with that. But all this is is waking a person up each day to see if they still need these robust and super powerful psychoactive drugs. So. And the funny thing is, I, as an intensivist, think somebody comes in crashing on Monday. To get them under control, I put on board the ventilator, the sedation, dialysis, whatever. For some reason, my tendency is to think, well, it was needed yesterday. It's still got to be needed today. Wrong. Totally not right. If anything we've learned in the past 20 years of critical care is the sooner you remove this stuff, the safer it is for the patients. So what is the nurse doing with the ADS? All you're doing is it's morning. John Smith is there. Yesterday, he needed high doses of propofol and fentanyl or 
heaven forbid, even a benzo because we're having shortages in drugs. Uh, but today I'm going to turn those drugs off. I'm going to wake him up. I'm going to make sure, first of all, this pain is controlled, A, analgesia. B, I'm going to do a, a both, SAT and SBT. So I'm turning the drugs off, see if he can tolerate the absence of that sedation. And if he is getting frustrated with the absence of the sedation, A, is it hyperactive delirium, which is not going to be made better by turning the drugs back on. B, is that he's frustrated by being on the vent. So I can put him on an SBT and say, Mr. Smith, we're, let me just let you breathe on your own for a little while. And if you do for 30 minutes, we'll take that tube out and you can breathe without the ventilator. And then C is choice of drug, well, hang, trying hang, to avoid. So, so hang, hang on one second. So just to clarify, so SAT is spontaneous awakening trial. SBT is spontaneous breathing trial, just for people who don't work in unit. And and it totally makes sense because then you can actually start to tease out, is there underlying delirium? And like you said, the drugs are not going to make that better. If anything, they're going to make it worse. And is the ventilator, we had actually um, Herbert Patrick, great ICU doc on the show, talking about how some of the magic of making patients comfortable is tweaking those ventilator settings with the RT secret sauce that can actually get them more comfortable. And you've spoken about that before. But anyways, I'll let you continue. Just want well, to I love that it. you said that because sometimes when you stop the sedation, the person looks anxious and frustrated. And really, it's just ventilator dyssynchrony because we don't have our settings right. Mm. So that that should not beget a ton of sedation. It should beget a good respiratory therapist adjusting the ventilator or doing an SBT, spontaneous breathing trial, from a 1996 New England Journal paper when I was a chief resident, uh, and just getting them off the ventilator in the first place. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's really important. The, the other thing we've learned, Zubin, is that this era of really heavy sedation with GABAergics, benzos and propofol, it seems like that people are saying in, in COVID, hey, let's go back to that if required. I don't see any data out there to tell us that we have to go undo 20 years and go back to the 1990s with heavy benzos, unless you literally are out of the other drugs, which that drug shortage would get a lot better if we got you off the ventilator sooner and created you know, less ventilator use. So I think these things are things we have to ponder. I think this is something very important because a lot of people now on the front lines in New York and all like uh, um, uh, Cameron, I'm forgetting his last name, is talking about we might be overdoing a lot of things, even ventilation on these patients where it's really a hypoxemia issue. And so there's a lot of, of nuance there that we won't have time to get into in this show, but you're absolutely, absolutely right. So you Let's are, get into it just a little bit though. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, at the beginning we were worried about droplets and so everybody said, well, gosh, we should intubate them. And people were talking about intubating on a few liters of oxygen thinking they're going to tank. Let me get them intubated. I don't want these droplets spewing. People are already starting to abandon that. Yeah. that. We were using way too many ventilators to get these people on ventilation early. And now they're also saying no BiPAP, no mask. Yeah. We're saying, look, let's use BiPAP. Let's use high flow. Let's keep them off the blower. Because really, Zubin, think about it. The risk of having all these people on ventilation begets now immobility, the the problems of ICU acquired weakness, like Miss Kim, uh, this this woman that I was with in Korea who had so much trouble. So already, Zubin, people are starting to rethink this idea of such early intubation because they thought this is creating too much ventilator use for people who could be managed with high flow oxygen and non-invasive ventilation. So, so when I first did a show about the medical management of COVID, I actually was reiterating some of these ideas that we'd heard from Seattle and China, which is early intubation. If you're looking at BiPAP, you probably, 
it's already too late. You ought to be intubating. Don't even mess around with high flow because you're going to be aerosolizing virus and all this. And it turns out maybe that's not true. And like you said, could, we need to reevaluate this, especially in the setting of resource utilization and the incredible discomfort that can come with ventilation that could be avoided if we could go with these other uh, things. Well, especially if, you know, one of the things we've learned about the lung disease is it's not a low compliance lung disease. It's a, it's a higher compliance lung disease. In fact, the paper that Gattinoni published in the Blue Journal showed the compliances up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, not down in the teens like we typically see with really bad ARDS. So that's even more of a reason to me that we don't need all these ventilators. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody can breathe with that sort of compliance then that's great. Now, they do have a lot of shunt-related hypoxemia, right. but we can get by with high-flow oxygen to take care of that issue. Uh, so I really think that that these we're learning a lot, and we have to just acknowledge, hey, it's a fast-moving thing. We haven't been through this before. But there's no, the bottom line is there's nothing that, that we see coming out right now that really mandates this early intubation with excessive ventilation use. In fact, in fact on the bundle, the A to F bundle, the only two that are really dramatically affected are the E and the F, which is the, we went through the ABCs. We didn't hit D as delirium. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. We actually didn't hit C. We got to go back and do C. Okay. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. C is choice of drug. Ah. And there what we've learned is that if you can avoid, especially GABAergic drugs. Mm. Now, benzos are the primal, primary example of, of a drug that's so deliriogenic. Propofol is also deliriogenic, but if you use it for a short period of time, its half-life stays short, it goes away fairly quickly. It's only when you get to propofol in four or five days, et cetera, you have this risk of obviously propofol infusion syndrome and such. Yeah. But if you're on it one or two days, I think it's a safe drug to use. Um, we want to avoid any just excessive psychoactive drugs. So yeah. that's basically what C is. Yeah. D is delirium management. And I love this mnemonic called the Dr. Dre. I don't know if you've been familiar with this, but you know, Dr. Dre is the earbud guy. Oh, I know Dr. Dre. Yeah. Rapper. And uh, D, so it's D-D-R-E, diseases, drug removal, environment. And basically what I'm telling you is that if somebody's delirious, so if a nurse goes to the bedside and does the CAM ICU and just has them, Mr. Smith, squeeze my hand. Okay. Squeeze my hand only when I say the letter A. And then every time... I say, I say, hey, they should squeeze. And every time they say a, a different letter, they don't squeeze, okay? Spell Casablanca. Mm. And if they can get eight out of 10 right mm. on Casablanca, they're attentive and they're not delirious. Mm. But if they don't get eight out of 10 right, they either squeeze too much, too little, whatever, then they're delirious. Mm. And that is an independent predictor of four major things mm. the audience should know. What is delirium an independent predictor of? Death, length of stay, cost of care, and acquired dementia, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the D of the bundle. And when they are CAM positive, we say, run the Dr. Dre. What diseases could be creating this? Definitely COVID, uh, but also congestive heart failure and COPD, hypoxemia. Infection, yeah. Uh, what drugs should be creating this? Drugs that be, should be removed. Any psychoactive drugs should be removed. And that's not just benzos. It's, it's all the psychoactive sedatives, but it's also H2 blockers, antibiotics, cefepime, et cetera. And then the E is huge, especially in COVID. What's the E of the Dr. Dre? Environment, mm. eyeglasses, hearing aids, mm. human touch, mm. sleep cycle, lights on during the day, lights off. And the environment is a disaster in COVID. And I, I'd like to see us be able to pay more attention to that piece of the D of the bundle if we can get there. Still, D-R-E.
Mother flipping DRE. Dude, that's that. I'll never forget that because I had not heard that mnemonic. That's brilliant. So that's the delirium component. Like you said, delirium is correlated with very bad outcomes. Everything from length of stay to, you said, acquired dementia. Yeah, wow, big time. We've showed this in 2013 in the New England Journal, uh, a paper that we had been funded to do by the NIH, where we followed people up to a year. And they had about a quarter to a half of them had mild to moderate dementia, and they did not have the dementia on the front end. These are general medical surgical ICU patients, not neuro, not strokes, not TBIs, not bonks on the head. What's going on? What we think is happening is that delirium is an external manifestation of basically neuronal apoptosis, cell death. And over the ensuing weeks and months after the ICU, the more delirium you had, the more likely you are to have atrophy on your CT scan. So you actually have a smaller frontal lobe and hippocampus in the in your brain if you had more delirium on the front end. And that's why we've got to be careful with these COVID patients, because it's not just that they have the ICU experience. We think the virus is neuroinvasive. So this virus, when it first got in the human body with no immune, uh, no immune ability to fight it at all, it said, OK, I'm just going to destroy the respiratory epithelium. But then the virus starts taking away a minute. I can go wherever I want. Why can't I just, I came in through the nose. Why don't I go retrograde through the olfactory bulb into the brain? And we have evidence from SARS and MERS that there are virion particles from coronavirus pandemics in the brain of, uh, of humans and animals. So we're actually going to study the long-term brain outcomes here at the, our center. I, I run a center at Vanderbilt with Pratik Pandrapandi, an anesthesiologist called the CIB Center, C-I-B-S, Critical Illness, brain dysfunction and survivorship. Mm. And so we're going to have NIH funding, hopefully by next week, to study long-term dementia, outcomes of corona, and hopefully even get the brains of, unfortunately, the deceased patients and study how how did this virus invade that brain. And it makes sense, too, because, you know, you're seeing uh, olfactory disturbances in COVID patients, anosmia, uh, issues like that. So you start to wonder. So now we've gone through D, which is crucial. Again, that's a whole episode in itself, right? Talking about the D component of that delirium. But let's get to the E of the bundle. So what's the E? Yeah, and it's really at the E and the F that I think, you know, up to the D, I see no delta in just applying the ABCDs at the bedside Hmm. with COVID. But once you get to the E, E is early mobility. So what it really means is is getting people out of the bed and walking them, even if on a ventilator. Mm. And we know we have great data saying that early mobility will reduce long-term physical dysfunction and improve quality of life. Plus, early mobility cuts delirium in half. So where are we with COVID? Well, with COVID, we can't have them walking up and down the halls because they're shedding virus Mm. for up to 36 days. We're now getting data. 30, over a month of viral shedding. So um, what we have to do, I think, is pay attention to the fact that they can't just sit in that bed. They can't be lumps on a log. We have to do passive and active range of motion. And what I'm hearing from my uh, former fellows who are down in New Orleans and Baton Rouge is they're, they sent me an email today showing, hey, we're going back to the basics here. And these people are getting inundated with COVID. And they said, we're, we're going back to basics. They sent me today their protocol with physical therapy and occupational therapy and they say, it's business as usual, folks. Let's get them out of the bed. Let's walk them around their room. Let's do what we can within the confines of that isolation. They won't be up and down the halls, but they're not sitting in that bed. And yeah. that's the E part. The family part is also critical. 
because that clearly we cannot just open these doors to everybody. So we're going to have some degree of isolation. And that last part, the immobility and the isolation without the family, I think is delirium on steroids. Mm -hmm. That's what really gets the brain to be so sensory deprived and probably prolongs the delirium a couple of days. Yeah. And uh, we, we all want to grapple with how to, be, how to best approach this. Yeah, so, so basically going this A to F bundle, if we make it part, and there's a website that I'm gonna to link to that's your website about ICU delirium that you, that you guys are running that's super helpful, and you can get all that stuff there, but people, I think, and, and you've actually done sort of a, a studies of like how many people are actually instituting this, and it's, it's not enough, it's, not, it's just simply not enough. And so why does it matter? We've already said, because it's one thing to save somebody's life, it's another thing to say what type of life are you saving, and that gets me to this piece, which is end of life. Now, people are dying alone, in discomfort without their families, how does this bundle actually affect our dignity if we are not getting out of the unit? If we're talking about end of life here, does is there a role for all this or should we give up on those patients? I love that you asked that question. Uh, first off, there are definite intangibles about the bundle that make it what it is. So a lot of scientists have said, which piece of the bundle created that mortality advantage? Which piece of the bundle shortened the length of stay and improved their delirium? You know what? Um, as you said earlier, the sum of these, it's greater than the sum of the parts, the overall effect. And I think that's because you can, how do you measure what it meant to somebody that they were alive and not delirious and able to talk to their daughter before they died? Mm. How do you measure that? I had a guy not too long ago, this is pre-COVID, he was dying, and, and I said to him, Mr. D, what matters to you? See, I flipped the letters. Instead of flipped the preposition. Instead of what matter, what's the matter with you, I said, what matters to you? Mm -hmm. And he said, I love my wife, and I want a beer. And <laughs> we got him that beer, and he spent the day with his wife, and he died that night. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you put a price on that? And the thing is that without the bundle, He'd have been delirious because we stopped those drugs. The drugs washed out. He wasn't getting the psychoactive drugs and he cleared his brain and was able to spend that last day with his wife. So let's talk COVID. When somebody is on a ventilator, prone, heavily sedated, they become to us. I don't care who we are. They become to us less of a person. They, they, we, we look at it as it's, it's, it's a sedated, comatose person in a bed. Now, I don't mean to say, I mean, I'm probably less sensitive than others, but all of us lose some degree of our awareness of how much that person is a person. Convert that over into an awake patient looking at you, asking and involved in their decision-making. Oh my gosh, it's a person again. They have a name. They have a story. They have a passion. And you know, the way that people work is, I think, when we have passion, get out of our way. But we, when we're sick and sedated and lose our why to live, then we lose that passion. You allow somebody to wake up and they realize, wait a minute, I'm going to live now. And there's my daughter on that iPad looking at me through that iPad in COVID days. Honey, I'm going to live now. I now have my raison d'etre. I, I have my why to live like uh, Victor Frankl and, and uh, you know, beautiful, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. said four times in that book, if a man has a why to live, he can get by with almost any how. It's actually a Nietzsche quote. But uh, I think that the bundle brings that full full force 
in our life for both the survivors and those people who are dying. And let me put a point on what you said, the survivors. So imagine that your last experience with your loved one is one full of regret and loss and lack of closure. Now you have a family that goes out in the world damaged in a way that did not need to happen. And what you said, if you apply the, you know, it, sound, and it sounds so reductionist, right? We're talking about, it's a bundle. These these click boxes, we make sure we go through it. It's, it. it's the opposite of reductionism. It's actually a protocol in service of holism. And so then it allows, it allows this family to have a kind of experience with someone who's not delirious, who's able to interact, that leaves them with a closure, that leaves them with a uh, a sense that there was a meaning in this, whereas before it would have been a meaningless act of the universe that this loved one was taken from them. Oh man, Zubin, you're hitting on it. This is that's so beautiful what you said. And and really, if you think about it, what we want to show other people when they're ill is mercy. Mm. We want to show mercy. And my, my definition of mercy, there's two parts to it. Listen, the first part is I want to dive and be willing to dive into the chaos of another person's life. Mm. But the second part of it is and to provide lifting and healing. So mercy is to, to dive in the chaos of another person's life and provide lifting and healing. And what you just said that the bundle does do, I think, is allows even the dying patients in the ICU to get lifting and healing because we're able, they are able to know who they are, even amidst dying, and, and have some connection with family and why. And we have we can have healing even without cure, mm. you know? And there's healing even in the absence of us being able to cure COVID-19. Uh, and one last, thing, one last image for you. Something that I teach the medical students a lot is when somebody's dying and they can't take food, for example, let's say their gut is too swollen, they're getting bloated, it's painful, and they can't tolerate a peg tube or something. I actually in, teach the students or the, the family, go back in our kitchen where we have those peanut butter and honey things, grab some honey, honey on a spoon. Mm. Honey on a spoon does all these things. It's comfortable for the patient. It tastes sweet. We love the sweet taste of honey. It's safe. They can't aspirate it. The family or the med student feels like they're doing something loving for the other person. And during this engagement, this human to human interaction, love is transferred from one person to the other, which, which is lost. The, the chance is lost if you don't do the bundle because they die just overtly, deeply sedated in a coma, and you miss all of these opportunities. So it's just an example. That's <clears throat> so beautiful, man. That is so beautifully said. And the idea that uh, we, you, you said it very well, when someone's prone, ventilated, unconscious, sedated, they are less than human when you're overwhelmed and you, because all our cues of who, who a human is are taken, all our social cues are gone and we see a lump of, of physiology that we have to tweak. The minute we no, 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 let's not let, let's make sure that all the listeners are getting this. There are absolutely people who need to get prone. That's not the question. We're not bashing. No, 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 no. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that if Monday they need proning on Tuesday, do that's, they still need it? That's so what right. the bundle does. The bundle doesn't impugn proning. The bundle doesn't impugn it. The bundle just says when the sun comes up tomorrow, I'm questioning all of this. I'm going to stop sedation, stop the ventilator and try and go back to a lesser amount of invasiveness. That's what the Bible yeah, and, and I think my point is about proning is, no, yeah, we absolutely need it. 
remember, let's be conscious that this is a human, because it's easy for us to turn that part of our mind off when we're overwhelmed. I know I was guilty of it in the unit, that, that okay, this is a problem to solve, not a human. And everything that you've, this journey you've taken us on during the course of this talk has reiterated how this is, again, it's part of a calling to show mercy on these patients, to lift them out in their deepest suffering. And what is the deepest suffering is in, often it's in the unit. And so I think this is such a beautiful reminder in the setting of a pandemic emergency where people are wondering, do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough PE, PPE? How am I going to not get sick? That, that this is the central reason of the why that we do what we do. You mentioned Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meeting. This is our why. Let's not forget it. And you have tools. We have tools that are evidence-based to help us do it. Yeah. And when people, by the way, one last thing about this whole uh, dying part is that, you know, if you look at the data on what people are suffering during dying. It's, it, it's pain is number 14 actually in the JAMA papers. Huh. It's existential suffering. Yeah. That's what people are suffering from. And so what the bundle allows is to address is issues of existential angst that somebody's going through and talk to them and find out, as I said to Mr. D, what matters to you. Yeah. So I can I guess in summary, I would say this, Hey, it's scary right now. We are nervous and we know that there is a disease out there that we can't cure with a specific drug. But we do know, here's what we do know. We do know from 20 years of large scale landmark randomized trials put together into a package that allows us to do good, safe care like a pilot would do getting you safely from one city to the other. We do know that that stuff works. And even the absence of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin or whatever might or might not work. These things work. Don't abandon them. Embrace those things as the tenets of what we do for our critically ill COVID patients. And it will help those patients who are surviving. It'll help the patients who are dying. And it'll help us as healthcare professionals and the families to, I think, at the end of the day, know that we did our absolute best. And that's kind of the bottom line, right? That's what we want, to do our best. Wes Healy, where, where can our audience go to learn more about this stuff? What's your site? Yeah, please go to our website. It's, there's nothing to sell you. It's just Google ICU Delirium. That You're going to hit icudelirium.org. It's a website we've had for about 20 years. We've updated it multiple times, but it's got lots of NPR sketches, lots of media stuff, tons of stuff for patients and families out there, Zubin. Uh, there's patient testimonials and videos, and uh, we just want to do our part here at the Sib Center at Vanderbilt and the Asheville VA, and my partner, Pratik Pandra Pandey, and I, and the 90 researchers that we have in the SIP Center, uh, want to make ourselves available to you. Uh, we actually have, it would be kind of bad if we didn't mention this, we, we have a, uh, an ICU survivor support group, and I think many of us out there need to set up a support group for these COVID survivors. What these people suffer when they leave the ICU is often greater, believe it or not, than what they suffered during the ICU. Mm. And when they leave the, the, the unit and have picks which is post-intensive care syndrome and have a dementia and a PTSD and a depression um, that, you know, these people, they lose their jobs, they lose their money, they lose internet connectivity, et cetera. So every Tuesday, for example, at one o'clock, we have a support group with Zoom and people can get on that support group and be with us. We have a neuropsychologist, Jim Jackson, who leads it. And these 90 researchers that we have built here in this research group, we are devoted to you and let us know how we can help. 
That's wonderful. Not enough people are talking about this. I'm so glad that someone who's not just a great scientist, but is actually a great communicator and is so passionate about this is leading this, uh, Wes. It's really an honor. ZPAC, this show, share it, please. Make sure that we do better about using these bundles, about looking at the human being in that bed in the ICU, especially during this time of COVID when everybody's frightened. We can do so much good in the world and reconnect with the sacred nature of our calling, this purpose, this calling, which is to connect with other human beings. All right, guys, I love you, and we out. Stay safe. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.